Welcome to Episode 7 of History of the Marine Corps, The Colonies Go to War, Part 1. Last week, we finished discussing some of the events leading to the American Revolutionary War. We touched on the Boston Massacre, where British soldiers were surrounded by an angry colonial mob and fired into the crowd, killing five and injuring eight. The Tea Act, which would benefit the East India Company and add a three-pence tax on all tea coming into the colonies. The Boston Tea Party, a protest organized by Bostonians because of the tea tax. And the Intolerable Acts, a group of laws passed to put the colonies in check. The Intolerable Acts would also introduce General Gage, the general of the British Army. This week, we'll discuss how the British react to the colonies rejecting the Intolerable Acts, as well as how the colonies react to the inevitable outcome of war. We'll also look at the first major battle between colonials and the British, Paul Revere's ride, and a couple of cool stories, one of which includes six British soldiers surrendering to an old lady, and another, a 78-year-old man taking on an entire British army single-handedly. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As we discussed last week, colonists did not take the Intolerable Acts lightly, and immediately rejected them. General Gage sent a letter back to Great Britain, informing them of the colony's refusal to comply with the Intolerable Acts. General Gage was not in a good position. He previously stated that only a few colonists were rebelling, and he would be able to take care of this issue within a relatively short time period with the men he already had. This all changed. General Gage and his men were now defending their position in Boston against angry colonials. In his letter, he asked for 20,000 men to help with putting the colonies in line. Parliament did not know how to handle his request. Not only did General Gage previously indicate that he would be able to manage the colonies with the resources provided, but also, there were only 12,000 soldiers in all of Great Britain. Gage's request would be denied. Britain was in the middle of an election, and training such a large army would require extensive resources, which would not be popular amongst Britons. Gage was told to handle the colonies with his current resources. A few months after General Gage's request, Great Britain received further news that the colonies were acquiring a large number of weapons and ammunition, enough to support an army. The colonies were doing this through a route in the Netherlands. King George III attempted to put a stop to this by prohibiting all weapons freights heading to the colonies. The British Navy was ordered to search any ships headed to the colonies and confiscate any weapons found. This prohibition would not be successful, since suppliers from the Netherlands, Spain, and France would not have to follow these rules. Colonists would continue to purchase their weapons and bring them back to the New World. During last week's episode, we also discussed the colony's decision to boycott any items from Great Britain. Word of this boycott reached Britain during the same time the colonies were stocking up on weapons. Lord Dartmouth stated, and many others agreed, that this boycott showed that the colonies have already declared war on Great Britain. Treason was no longer a question in Great Britain. Parliament, along with the British citizens, saw the colony's actions as treason to the king. 
General Gage's situation wasn't getting better, and he sent another message to the ministry. Gage reiterated his previous message and stated that he did not have the proper resources to manage the colonies and needed more men. He suggested that they temporarily halt the intolerable acts. Previously, when General Gage was in London, he commented that the colonists acted like lions because the British had behaved like lambs. This seemed to no longer apply. This was the message he used to convince Parliament, and this was the message Parliament was sticking with. Gage talked a big game while he was in Great Britain, but it seemed that he couldn't walk the walk. Gage was ordered to take his well-trained British army and use them to control the colonies. King George III had the same mindset as the rest of the country, and thought this had gone on long enough. He stated, Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. The new parliament assembled on November 30th, 1774, and King George officially commanded British law to be re-established in Massachusetts. A few British members in parliament wanted to seek options that would not lead to war. Lord Dartmouth was one of them, and wished to send a peace delegation to the colonies as an attempt to restore order without war. However, this option was the minority, and most members of parliament had enough. They started to plan for a fight in spring. War was the opinion of many British residents as well. At the time, Samuel Johnson, author of a pamphlet titled Taxation No Tyranny, published in 1775, argued the hypocrisy of colonials' protest of taxation without representation and their constant calls for freedom while simultaneously owning slaves. I have a copy of the pamphlet on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you would like to take a look. Johnson made some excellent points in this pamphlet and I suggest giving it a read. In July 1774, Admiral Samuel Graves assumed command of the North America and West Indies Station. In the Dictionary of National Biography, a volume of documents referencing prominent people in British history, stated that this role was perhaps the most ungracious duty that has ever fallen to the lot of a naval officer. Graves had orders to enforce the intolerable acts that were unclear, and now he was ordered to sail up and down the east coast of North America and capture any ships carrying weapons and ammunition. When the colonies received word of Admiral Graves' mission, they automatically assumed that they would head to Fort Williams and Mary. This fort was one of the most massive forts in the Northeast and housed multiple cannons and over 100 barrels of gunpowder. It was guarded by Britain, however not very well. Captain John Cochrane led a team of five soldiers to defend Fort William and Mary. Little did he know, Paul Revere would ride to New Hampshire and inform Samuel Cutts about Admiral Graves' arrival. Cutts led the Committee of Correspondence, which was a shadow government organized by the Patriot leaders of the 13 colonies. They agreed that action needed to be taken, and organized hundreds of armed colonial militiamen to assemble and take the fort. They needed to assemble the militia and take action quickly, which naturally meant that it was difficult to keep this a secret. Word reached Captain Cochrane and his five men before the militia arrived. Cochrane was outnumbered, but he did have the benefits of cannons and a fort. His men loaded the cannons, their muskets, and prepared for a battle. When the militia arrived, Cochrane was ready for them. John Langdon, leader of the militia, was blunt with Cochrane 
and said they were there to take the fort. Of course, Cochrane was against this proposal, but little did he know, during their conversation, nearly all of the militia went under the walls of an unguarded section of the fort. When Langdon left, his militia attacked the fort. Cochrane and his five men attempted to defend their position by firing cannons and their muskets, but they did not hit any of the militia. The militia was able to take the fort and disarm Cochrane and his men without losing a single life or killing the defenders. The militia would hold Cochrane and his men prisoner and take all of the gunpowder in the fort. In an act further supporting treason, the colonial militia would take down the king's banner of the fort. The militia left with the gunpowder and freed the prisoners. The gunpowder would be split up and distributed amongst the colonies. The colonies would also store the gunpowder inland to protect the supply from Navy vessels. A second raid on Fort Williams and Mary would take place shortly after, and this time the militia would look for weapons. A smaller group of attackers would arrive. Around 100 militia would be involved with the second raid, but it still significantly outnumbered Cochrane's men. Cochrane did not put up a fight this time and agreed to speak to the militia's leader. The militia demanded weapons and Cochrane replied with an attempt to negotiate. He offered to provide all colonial weapons, but he would not turn over any property of the king. He attempted to pawn off old, broken weapons to the militia. This plan backfired and the militia entered the fort, removed all guns, ammunition, and around 20 cannons. Similar events were happening throughout New England, and the colonies were setting up separate governments and militias to make decisions as an independent union, without guidance from Great Britain. In March 1775, delegates were being selected for the Second Continental Congress during the Second Virginia Convention. Although the colonies were not officially at war, it was hard to argue that war was not going on between Great Britain and the colonies. On March 23, 1775, during the Second Virginia Convention, Patrick Henry gave a speech in which he stated, Give me liberty or give me death. This speech would sway the assembly to pass a resolution for Virginia troops to support the Revolutionary War. Georgia, who refused to send a delegate to the First Continental Congress, would participate in the Second Continental Congress. However, despite the colony's collaboration against Great Britain, the taking of Fort William and Mary, the dispersion of guns and ammunition, and the preparation for war against Great Britain, the majority of colonists did not want independence from Great Britain. Yes, they wanted their freedom, and they did agree with the taxation without representation argument, but they envisioned a scenario where negotiations with Britain were still an option. But this was no longer possible. The reality was that war was inevitable. The only way a peaceful scenario would play out is with one side backing down and agreeing to terms they previously denounced. This was not going to happen. On April 18, 1775, General Gage planned to attack. General Gage was aware of a group of riders who would ride from town to town providing intelligence to locals about the British military. Gage wanted to add an element of surprise to his attack and knew that he needed to disable the network of riders and eliminate messages reaching locals. He could not maneuver an army quick enough to stop the riders, so Gage sent 20 men, on horses, 
to prevent any riders they see from reaching their destination. Colonists assumed Gage would try and stop the riders and plan for this. Multiple routes would be created, which included the use of boats and locations where horses would be waiting for riders. The colonists had various methods of informing locals of an imminent attack from the British, one of which was with lanterns. Lanterns would be placed in the steeple of Old North Church. If one lantern was lit, this meant the British were attacking by land. If two were lit, this meant the British would attack by water. The militia was growing impatient waiting for the British army to arrive and decided to send out scouts verifying the British army was in fact coming. One of the scouts returned and said there were no signs of the army. The militia commander decided to release his men but ordered that they stay around the area just in case the British arrive. As soldiers typically do, most chose to hang out around a tavern. Paul Revere overheard some of the soldiers speaking and tried to convince them that the British were definitely coming and he had seen them with his own eyes. While Paul Revere was trying to convince the militia, the second scout returned and stated the British were indeed coming and that they were almost in Lexington. The militia scrambled to get into formation and Paul Revere snuck out the back hearing the first shots of the revolution. While Paul Revere took off on his infamous ride to Lexington, the militia prepared to fight a unique fighting force organized by General Gage. General Gage created an elite regiment consisting of grenadiers, light infantry, and royal marines. The grenadiers would act as shock troops and lead an assault from the front. Light infantry would be used for quicker attacks, flanking the colonists and protecting the grenadiers and the Royal Marines would be used for rapid deployment and amphibious assaults. There were 11 companies of grenadiers, 10 companies of light infantry, and a few companies of Royal Marines. During the confrontation, the British Army and the Colonial Militia stood 150 to 200 feet apart. This first battle was a mess. The British Army fired the first round of shots at the Colonial Militia. Only a few men were hit with the first volley. However, when the British were reloading, the militia ran for cover. Most of the militia's deaths and injuries were a result of being stabbed or shot in the back. Seeing the militia flee, the British army became disorganized and started chasing the militia. This disorganization lasted about 15 minutes until the British army was ordered to return to formation. The colonists had eight men killed and nine injured. The British only had one injury. Unbeknownst to the British Army, this battle was being watched by the Concord Militia. Slowly but inevitably, more and more members joined the Concord Militia during the battle, and soon they outnumbered the British five to one. The Concord Militia started to advance on the British Army, who has now captured the North Bridge. The two companies of British soldiers holding the bridge saw the militia and began to retreat to meet up with the other two British companies behind them. The British army fired at the militia, thinking that they would flee just as the battle before, but this was not the case. This militia was organized and stayed in formation while continuing to march towards the British army. They stopped around 150 feet from the British army, took aim, mostly at the officers, and fired. Half of the officers were hit during the first round of fire. 
Shocked by the courage, accuracy, and discipline of the militia, the British army ran, leaving any injured soldier on the battlefield. This took everyone by surprise. Some of them chased the fleeing British army. Some just decided to go home. One of the militiamen found Lieutenant Edward Gold near the bridge, injured during the first volley of shots. This militiaman took out his hatchet, swung it at the lieutenant, hitting him in the head. He cut off part of his scalp, which uncovered part of his brain. Lieutenant Gold was left for dead. While he was laying by the bridge, with his brain showing, British soldiers would pass him and offer no help. They would begin spreading rumors about the colonists torturing prisoners of war. The fascinating part is that Lieutenant Gold lived and was able to tell his story. This attack severely disorganized the British Army. With half of the officers dead or severely injured, the junior officers were left in charge. The junior officers did not garner the same respect as the senior officers. This combined with the lack of sleep, lack of ammunition, and growing militia caused the British Army to stop listening to orders. Many of the soldiers began to leave the British ranks and attempted to surrender to the militia in Lexington. General Gage dispatched a wagon with ammunition to replenish the army. The wagon only contained a guard force of nine men. During the trip, they met a group of militiamen who were too old to take up arms in Lexington but decided to help out by protecting the roads near their homes. They ordered the wagon to stop. When the officer denied their request, they opened fire, killing two sergeants and wounding the officer. The remaining six men would throw their muskets into a nearby pond and run. While they were retreating, they would come across an old woman on the road who was digging for dandelions nearby. They surrendered to her, and she took the six soldiers to the local militia at the home of Captain Ephraim Frost on Watertown Road. The men would be made prisoner. Needless to say, this was an embarrassment to Great Britain. When the word of the surrender reached Great Britain, various newspapers had the line, If one old Yankee woman could take six grenadiers, how many soldiers will it require to conquer America? The returning British would face heavy fire, and both sides would see some of the most aggressive action during this battle. The militia would fire at British troops traveling the road, and British soldiers would flank the militiamen and destroy them. The oldest known colonial combatant in the American Revolutionary War would see action during this battle. Samuel Whitmore, 78 years old, was farming in his fields when he noticed British soldiers sent in to help the retreating army. Whitmore loaded his musket and two dueling pistols and decided to take on the army himself. He was able to fire five shots with his musket which killed one man. The army started to advance on his position. He drew his two dueling pistols and killed two more men. When the British soldiers reached his position, he drew a sword and attacked. He was shot in the face by a British soldier and stabbed multiple times by bayonets. He was left for dead, but miraculously, this hard charger survived and lived another 18 years. To combat the snipers and random shots from homes close to the road, the British army would use infantry to clear the houses killing anyone residing in the house and looting anything of value. There was no mercy by the British troops. There are many stories about slaughtering civilians and executing prisoners of war by shooting them in the back.
One of the militiamen survived to tell his side of the story, after the British army held him and several of his friends as prisoner and began executing them one by one. He was shot 12 times in the back. This was the start of war, and the ideas of a revolution turned into a reality. Next week, we'll explore a few more battles in the formation of the Second Continental Congress, who would create a formal military for America, which includes the Continental Marines. Thanks for joining. Next week, we will discuss a couple other battles between the British and the colonies, as well as the organization of the Second Continental Congress and the organization of America's military, which includes the United States Marine Corps. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.